Well, what a delight it is to return to this passage of Scripture. This morning we are going to complete our study of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We've been here for uh, quite a while, but it has been quite a ride. And what's amazing about it is that we're not even done with the Gospel of Matthew. There's so much more to go to, which is exciting for us. But just to see and hear uh, this sermon of the Lord uh, being delivered, and uh, just the honor and the privilege it is for me to be able to bring this sermon to you bit by bit. Now, we are going to look at verses 28 and 29 next week, but for our purposes, really, this is the grand finale to his magisterial sermon. How does he end the greatest sermon ever preached? As you've seen in verse 13, Jesus issues a series of four final warnings, four warnings. But they're warnings that are designed to drive the listener, drive the hearer toward a decision. This is not something that leaves you on the ropes, so to speak. It brings you into action. The first warning comes in verses 13 and 14. It tells the hearers that there are only two ways to go. There's not a bevy of options. There's two ways to go. There's either the broad way that leads to destruction or the narrow way which leads to life. And the idea behind this warning is that we are to choose the narrow way. Jesus says, enter by the narrow way. The second warning connects to the first as the sheep are cautioned about false prophets and those who would lead you down this broad road to destruction. The third warning comes in verses 21 to 23. He declares that those who would desire to go the narrow way, he says, those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, even those who attempt to do miraculous and wonderful things in his name, they will ultimately not find life if they are not willing to obey him. It's not simply profession alone, words alone. Your life has to bear fruit that something has happened inside. You have to bear the fruit, and that was his warning there. Again, it's one thing to claim Christ. It's quite another thing to submit to him as Lord. And the fourth and final warning comes in verses 24 to 27 and addresses uh, really more than the direction or the profession or the intention. He gets down to the heart of the matter. And the prevailing question, as we're going to see, is this. This is the question for all of us to consider this morning. On whom or what are you building your life? On whom or on what are you building your life? This, my friends, is a timeless question. Because here's how it goes. And I want to walk you kind of through this the way that we see it around us. You're born into a family. You're born, you're taught by your parents They train you uh, in the ways of your life, and then eventually you get trained at another place, a school or a college or a university. You begin to formulate your ideas, formulate your opinions, and then at some point you seek to be gainfully employed, whatever that may be. You receive even more training in that way. And at a certain point, most people, men and women, begin to fall into some kind of identity, And it will go something like this. Well, I'm a businessman, or I'm a tradesman, or I'm a mom, or I'm a dad, or I'm a housewife, or I'm a stay-at-home dad, or whatever you begin to build your life around, that then oftentimes becomes our identity. You ask most people, you talk to someone on the street, the first question you normally ask them is what? What do you do for work, right? It's kind of just sort of an, an icebreaker. 
Uh, but really, that becomes, in, at least in our conscious mind, sort of an identifier, some kind of a marker of who a person is. Whatever you devote yourself to begins to become what you most closely identify with. And then as that is starting to happen for most people, you bring in other kinds of outside influences, namely media. You bring in the news, you bring in TV, you bring in the internet, movies, books, articles, tools of culture. And they begin to influence. And as your life progresses, you find yourself listening to and being conditioned by all the views that are around you. It's amazing how you'll talk to most people and whatever they say to you, you've heard before. It's, it's almost they're parroting something that they've read or heard or seen. That's generally how popular culture goes. That's why fads exist. Catchphrases and ideas and concepts and however things are popular. But before you know it, your life has been built on some sort of foundation. There's a basis for the origins for your life. And what happens, however... When that foundation begins to be shaken, what happens to your life if your foundations begin to shake? Let me tell you, my friends, the Lord Jesus is in the business of shaking foundations. He does it all the time. In fact, for most people in the Western world, we've seen our very way of life shaken to the core in the last 18 months. For those who built their lives on their own self-sufficiency, This is a rough year, wasn't it? Your own ability to sustain your life on your terms. Now, to be clear, we are called to be responsible, to work hard, to provide. We're we're called to not just sit on our couch and sit on our tail and do nothing. We're called to do something. We're called to live a life. But if your hope or your identity were wrapped up in your job, your career, your investments, your financial stability, even if your identity was wrapped up in your health, what happens when that's taken away? What happens when your, your foundations, your core, is shaken? Many people today build their lives around political or philosophical ideology. But what happens when your candidate loses, or your party shifts, or the movement begins to tank? What happens to you then if that is what your life is built on? Either we haven't even gotten to the eternal spiritual matters yet, but my introductory comments here are simply to do this, to set a stage or set the stage for a key question, the real key question here on whom or what are you building your life? To answer this question, I would invite you then to turn with me to the end of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Again, the the crowds, they've been standing there, they're listening to Jesus' sermon, and we know from a few verses away here that they're awestruck. They're, They're standing there and they're listening and their minds are blown, they're amazed at his teaching. He has pronounced blessing on the godly and on the upright. He's warned the disobedient. He's gone from from. Far from tearing down the law, he's actually vowed to uphold and fulfill the law of God. He's latched on to this perfect law. He's applied it to every aspect of the person of your life. We've seen over the last several months that there's been no aspect of our life and our personhood that has not been surgically uh, cut into by this sermon. Every aspect of our life, who we are from the heart inside all the way out, the heart, the intentions, the motives, the mind, your friendships, your enemies, your marriages, issues of greed and anxiety and purity, judgment, 
Your practices like prayer, fasting, giving. The whole spectrum of human life has been addressed by the very one who created all human life. And now he comes to his grand conclusion. And he commands his listeners to heed his words and act on them. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. His final warning. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, like with the three previous warnings, Jesus sets up a series of of pairings. He pairs different symbols up, different metaphors up, in order to illustrate the truth of doing what's right. The first one we saw a few weeks ago was the two ways. There's two ways to go. There's the broad way, the narrow way, and he says, choose one correct way, that's the narrow way. And then we saw the illustration of the two trees. One tree would bear good fruit, the other tree would bear bad fruit. And obviously for us, we understand that Jesus is desiring us to bear good fruit. It's very simple. And then we really saw last week two, I didn't really get into this the, the imagery as much, but two professors. And what I mean by professor is not someone who teaches at a college, but rather a person who's making a profession. A person who's making a profession of faith only is not guaranteed entrance into the kingdom, but those who profess faith and do the will of God from a regenerated heart, that's the person who enters into the kingdom of God. The last illustration... So again, two ways, two trees, two professors. The last illustration is that of two builders. Two builders. Now, unlike the other warnings, Jesus leads off this warning with the word, therefore. Therefore. I believe this word is here, and it's significant for several reasons. The Greek word, un, uh, rendered therefore, appears four times in this sermon, all of which at key junctures. We see it in chapter 5, verse 23, chapter 5, verse 48, chapter 7, verse 12, and then finally here, chapter 7, verse 24. Now, some have seen this occurrence of the word therefore pertaining only to the final four sections here, that when he says therefore here, he's only talking about the last few minutes of his sermon. But really, in truth, I believe that this is stretching even farther back to contain the entire sermon. I think this is a final therefore because he's wrapping everything up. Why? Because he says, when he makes reference to the words of mine, I believe that what he's talking about is the totality of everything he's taught. It's not just the warnings here. He's saying, therefore, those who would hear the words of mine, hearing the whole sermon, everything I've said to you, that, I believe, is the implication. This becomes all the more important later on, as we're going to see. But in examining these two builders, we're meant to take note of the key differences between the two. Well, how so? Because in verses 24 and 25, uh, the the information here is virtually identical to verses 26 and 27. In fact, you could write down these first two verses and the second two verses in a column next to each other, and it's virtually identical except for uh, four key points. 
Four key points. The structure of the verses are identical. The grammar, some of the verbiage, I mean, they're, they're parallel sentiments. Again, identical except for four places. Four places. And so as we're going to see today, I want to take those four differences as they pertain to, to two builders here. And I want to look at what Jesus is teaching us through these four main points. And number one, when it, when it comes to these two builders, we're going to see the first thing, their response. The first thing to note between these two builders is their response. The first thing we note here is that both builders, they both hear the words of Christ. They both hear. He's preaching. They're both aware. They're both cognitively there with him. They hear his words. In fact, at every point, the conditions are the same. Both of these sort of parallels, both cases, the conditions are the exact same for both people. They both hear the words of Christ. They both have an opportunity to respond. And they both have the chance to build houses that are going to soon face a storm. So he's not setting up favor over one or the other, is my point. But the first main difference here is that one builder, who really represents a whole group of people, because he says everyone who does X, Y, Z, he's talking about people, but he he personifies it into one builder. One builder hears the words of Jesus and acts on them. Okay, they hear, he hears the words and he acts on them. The Greek word for act is poieo, which can mean to make or to produce or to create, to cause, even to work. So the person who listens to what Jesus is saying and responds by jumping into action, that's what we're talking about here. They hear and immediately they want to go and do whatever he is saying. They, they seek to obey immediately. However, verse 26 The parallel passage here tells of the other builder who also hears the words of Jesus, yet he does not act. This person sits on their hands. It's like the words go in one ear and come out the other. Or worse, they hear and understand, but yet they decide against heeding the words that he says. They think they know better. This happens all the time, doesn't it? It happens with biblical preaching. How many times have you heard a sermon on a Sunday morning, or even online, that's impacted you in such a way, and you respond in the moment, in your heart, you say, oh yes, this is what I have to be doing. But then when you go home, you never follow through with the thing you committed to while you were sitting in the pew. Does that ever happen? I think it happens to a lot of us, doesn't it? You hear the word of God proclaimed, and yet you don't act on it. But Jesus says elsewhere in Luke 6, 47, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Just to pull back for a second. People have come up to me after the service and say, Pastor, that that sermon really spoke to me. Now, in my humanness, I want to be like, All right, I gave a good sermon today. But years of doing this has taught me otherwise. My first reaction is, oh boy, I really hope that they take that and go home with it, because otherwise they have just violated the conviction in their hearts. So don't come and tell me if you have no desire to go home and apply the thing that has convicted you. And nine times out of ten, I would even say ten times out of ten, I've said nothing to you. What's actually happened is the Holy Spirit, using His Word, has convicted you. So thank you for the encouragement, but by all means, go home and do what the Lord has told you to do. Okay. (laughs) I think you understand what I'm talking about. There are blessings for obedience. 
There are blessings for obedience. And that's the first thing to note here is their response. One of them acts on the words of Jesus. The other does not act. They don't follow through. They don't take it to heart. They don't seek to apply. But what does Jesus say of their respective responses? Well, his response to their response is to make a character judgment of them, which leads us to number two, their character. Their character. Now, to be clear, Jesus, again, is addressing a large crowd of people, and they're seeking to uh, apply these things to themselves. He wants to warn the crowd, and he knows, looking out over this sea of people, however many there are, that some of them are going to hear and act, but most likely, many of them are going to hear and not act. But he draws a comparison. He makes this characterization. Verse 24 again, he says, Everyone who hears the words of mine and acts on them, here's the characterization, may be compared to a wise man. Verse 26, however, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man. And so the issue then is between wise and foolish. Wise and foolish. The Old Testament focuses heavily on this distinction between wisdom and folly, giving obvious preference to wisdom. Wisdom. All the Israelites coming through and, and hearing the words of Christ, all through, or the word of God explained to them in the Old Testament, all throughout their time as a nation and even beyond Jewish culture, embraced wisdom. They loved wisdom and they despised folly. The Bible does not simply praise wisdom for its own sake. and In fact, oftentimes we see that there is a theological component to wisdom. It's not just being smart. It's not just street smarts. Wisdom is often tied, according to Proverbs 1.7, with the fear of the Lord. Likewise, in Psalm 111.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but then it also adds an obedience component. It says the sentence afterwards, A good understanding Uh, Have all those who do his commands, his praise endures forever. So once again, the beginning, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But yet if you have understanding, it's good for you to do the commandments of the Lord. So it's not just enough to fear God and say, oh, God, you're amazing. And I, I, I stand in awe of you and then go about your business that fear of the Lord in wisdom should lead you to obedience of the command. Even in his parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, he leads off the saying by noting that five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent or wise. And this would have an everlasting impact on their lives and decisions. But again, Jewish culture, you have to keep this in mind with the context, Jewish culture valued wisdom. They valued wisdom and they despised folly. And so when Jesus likened the active, obedient hearer to a wise man, their ears would have perked up. They would have thought to themselves, well, that's what I want to be. I want to be that wise man. Of course I do. On the other hand, foolishness is derided. And again, there's often a theological thrust behind that. It's hard to forget Famously, Psalm 14, 1, it is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. And so at the very core of atheism is foolishness. And foolishness leads to all kinds of other sinfulness and wickedness and rebellion. And while perhaps today we don't fear foolishness as much as we ought to, and I think there could be a lot to be said for that, we sort of laugh at folly, 
We have TV shows and we have all kinds of entertainment that's built around foolishness and we laugh at it and we think it's great and people aspire to be YouTube stars doing stupid things to get comments and likes, but they're glorying in foolishness. The Jewish audience here would have had a very visceral reaction to this. Nobody in that audience would have wanted to be regarded as a fool. But that's what they were being presented with. He says, those who acted on Christ's words are considered to be wise, and those who do not act are considered to be fools. Why exactly did it mean, or what exactly did it mean for them to act, and why was it so important for them to respond to Christ? Why is this so important? The answer comes to us when we consider the basis of these words. Number three, their foundation. Again, anybody could have stood up in the public square and say, if you listen to me, you're smart. If you don't listen to me, you're foolish. Anybody could have done that, right? But that's not what Jesus does. He has, there's something more to his words. There's a bigger reason why he's calling for a response, a wise response. Again, both builders hear the words of Jesus. Both builders respond in some way. And both builders begin to build houses. What is the main distinction? Verse 24, the wise man built his house on the rock. But verse 26, the foolish man built his house on the sand. A few questions for us to ask then. What does it mean for them to build their house? We're speaking in metaphors here, right? What does this mean to build your house? If you follow the contour of the last few warnings, however, it becomes clear that to build your house is really synonymous to building your life. Let me prove it to you. Verse 13 and 14. The issue was traveling the correct way. That pertains to how you live your life. The way that you go about your your business, your life, your decisions. Verses 15 to 20. Jesus taught on good fruit versus bad fruit with respect to the quality and nature of your deeds. So what you do, if you do good things out of a good heart, that's good fruit. If you do unwise things, foolish things, and bad things out of a bad heart, well, that's bad fruit. So the quality and character of your deeds according to what's in your heart. And then verse 21, Jesus is he's summing it up and he says, the one who does the will of the Father enters heaven. These are deeds. Again, this is living obedience. This is the decisions that you make. This is the thoughts that you think, the intentions of your heart, the words that you say, how the, the stuff of life, whatever comprises your life as you know it, that is what we're talking about here. And so when we switch the metaphor, it becomes very clear. What you do, how you act, what you decide to do, the fruit you bear, all becomes the substance of the life that you're building. All of us right now are building a life. Every single person. Even when you're, when you're a child, a young child, they're building a life. Now, it doesn't really belong to them yet because they're under their parents' house, but they're, they're developing language. They're starting to think things. They're developing likes and dislikes and habits and affections. So every single one of us is building our life. And so the question then becomes, what kind of life are you going to build? Jesus says, the wise man will build his house on the rock. What is this? What is this? I know if you've been sitting in church for any number of years, you've probably heard this verse read or even taught. And it's easy for us to just say, well, you know, building the house on the rock, that's just like a solid foundation. That's just building your life right. 
But what is it specifically? In terms of the rock here, according to Luke 6.48, Jesus says that the builder here dug down and laid a foundation upon the rock. This word for rock is petra in the Greek. It's not a stone or like a boulder like you'd think about it, even a big boulder. Rather, it's, it's a mass of rock. It's similar to like a, a ledge on a mountain. A large, large piece of granite that doesn't seem to have any end that goes all the way back into the mountain. So it's a very, very large, large boulder. Think of the Rock of Gibraltar. Think of something like that. So the idea is that the builder dug through all the sand and all the silt until he reached this solid, massive ledge on which he could set his entire foundation for the house. Anyone who builds knows that you have to have a solid, immovable foundation in order to construct a sturdy house. That's just basic, isn't it? But what happens, or or what I should say, what is this rock? What is this rock in terms of the metaphor? Many will be quick to say from the scriptures here that Jesus is talking about himself, that he is the rock, that it's Jesus. And certainly you'll be able to find lots of scripture to back that up. Just a couple of verses, Ephesians 2.20 calls Christ the cornerstone of the foundation, so something of a rock there. Uh, Romans 9.33 quotes from the Old Testament calling Christ the stone of stumbling. He's a stumbling block to those who do not believe. When Paul teaches about the rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness, he illuminates and he says in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that that rock that followed them was Christ. Now, there's a lot of interpretation about, is that literally him following? Is it a rock itself? Is it personified? What's going on with the rock? That's a different sermon for a different day. But here in 1 Corinthians 3.11, the verse we read this morning, the sufficiency and exclusivity of Jesus, Paul writes, No man can lay a foundation other than the one that has been laid, and that is Jesus Christ. Christ. And so we affirm the words of Scripture. Yes, we are called to build your life on Christ. That is absolutely correct. However, Jesus says something slightly different here. He provides a little bit more nuance to that idea. Look again at verse 24. Look at this with me. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus is focusing here on hearing his words and then acting on them. Them meaning the words, his teaching. Then he compares acting on the words to building on the rock. And so if you follow the comparison he's making here, the rock is the teaching, the words of Christ. Now, certainly you cannot separate God from his word, as although many theological liberals try to do that, it's, it's impossible. Jesus never does that. He is called in John chapter 1, the word. But which words are we talking about here? Well, for starters, it is the content of the Sermon on the Mount. So everything we've spent all this time going through and examining, all the things that have been cutting you and me to the heart, things that we've been forced to examine, uh, the word of truth that has been piercing into our soul, those words, the words of his sermon. But if you bring that even further, it becomes the totality of his entire ministry while on earth. Because we know that he said more than just what's in this sermon. The Gospels include, I mean, four Gospels include so much more of his teaching, his parables, his commands, his exhortations, his warnings, as well as his comforts. 
According to Matthew 5.17, Jesus came to uphold the Old Testament scriptures, even to fulfill them. And so really, Jesus' words consist of his own authoritative reiteration, explanation, and application of the scriptures. So he grabs all the Old Testament scriptures, all the law, the prophets. He brings them with him. Doesn't abolish a single one, but yet still himself embodies the truth that's there and brings it forward and encapsulated, and it's the propagation of sound biblical doctrine. And that body of teaching, Jesus' teaching, built on the foundation of the Old Testament, is then passed on to the apostles. And that was given to the early church. Acts 2.42 tells us that the early church, the first church in Acts 2, they were devoted first to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to that teaching. They focused in, just like the Bereans did, they examined the doctrine, they examined the teaching, and they compared it to the Scriptures. And if the, te- the teaching that they were hearing from their preachers and their pastors was, in, it was congruent with the Scriptures, they affirmed it and says, yes, this is biblical doctrine. But if a preacher came to town and was teaching against the Word of God, they rejected them and says, you're false. And so we have to do the same, evaluate what we're hearing from the pulpit. Are the words that are being spoken aligning with the Scriptures? Are they aligning with biblical doctrine? Because the Apostles' teaching is Christ's teaching. It's His complete teaching. And then we know that the Apostles' teaching, the Apostles' doctrine, as it's also called, was then written down into 27 books that now comprise our New Testament. And so the words of Christ are the full content of His teaching, which encapsulates the Old Testament, given to the apostles, and then given to us in the New Testament. Did this gel with Scripture? Is this true? Well, again, to affirm, Galatians, or excuse me, Ephesians 2.20 says that the whole church called God's household is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So yes, Jesus is the rock. He is the cornerstone on which everything else is built. But the whole totality of the foundation, the reason that the apostles were the apostles, the reason that the prophets were the prophets, is not because of them intrinsically. We're not building our faith on these really great guys. It's not them specifically. It's not even on their their personal faith. It is, however, on the doctrine of, of their testimony. It is the the totality of what they're proclaiming. The Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, becomes, as Paul says, the standard of sound words. This is the standard of what is sound and good and right and true. It is God's truth on which we can build our lives. This has never been more pressing than now. Even the last 50 years or so, we've seen different battles in culture. And I would argue that most of these battles, if not all of these battles, have been directly connected to the interpretation and understanding of the doctrine of Scripture. The battle for the authority of the Bible. The battle for the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible. Now I think we're even going further. Now we're fighting for the sufficiency of the Word of God. Because so many other voices want to jump in and say, well, I'm going to use the Bible. And you say, okay, well, that's good. Then they launch onto something else. 
And every single week, every single day, I hear some new clip or watch some clip from some preacher who's uttering something that's never been said before. They're standing there with a Bible in their hand, and then they say something completely different. What we need to reclaim and to stand on is not just the authority and the sufficiency and the, uh, and the inerrancy of Scripture. I was actually going to reverse that, but the sufficiency of Scripture. Why is it so important that the Bible is sufficient? Because if it's insufficient, we have nothing to build our life on. If the Word of God is sinking sand, then we're doomed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if, if these things aren't true, and he's talking specifically about the resurrection of Christ, but really, if biblical truth is not true, then we're the most pitiful people. We've wasted our lives. I'm wasting my job if this is not true. Jesus says in verse 25 that a house that has been built on his words has been founded on the rock. You want to build your life on what is sure, what is true, what is solid? Eat this book, my friends. Study the doctrine of Scripture. Get in, read the words, meditate on them, memorize them. I challenge you this morning, I challenge you to grab large portions of Scripture whole paragraphs, and work hard to commit them to memory. And you might say, well, I struggle with memorization, Pastor. Well, so do I. <laughs> I think everybody does. It's like a muscle you have to flex. You start small, start with a phrase, build to a verse, build to a paragraph. Then you get to whole chapters. There are believers I know that have memorized the entire New Testament and can recall it. It, be- it serves you. It becomes a tool to use. It's hard to imagine a day when they will remove the Word of God physically from us. But you know, even if that day comes, commit it to to your heart, as the Scripture says, and you'll have it forever. Again, that is not an authoritative command, just a pastoral exhortation to encourage you to learn the Word of God. What about those who build their house on sand? What is the sand in the metaphor? Jesus is if, he, if the rock is Jesus' words, then obviously, by simple logic, the sand is whatever is not Christ's words, right? More specifically, however, we're talking about worldly philosophy. Paul warns the church in Colossians 2.8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You see that? See what he's doing there? He sets up two things. He said it's either the wisdom of the world and all their panoply of foolishness, or it's Christ and His Word. This foolishness includes what's talked about in Colossians 2.23, self-made religion. Those who seek to build their life on something that they found somewhere else, some best-selling book that propagated some new religion... Maybe they've delved deep into old religions around the world and they're sort of building their their syncretistic belief. Syncretism is really just designer religion. Well, I like the meditation of this and I I like the the gods over here. I like the practices over here and I'll put this in there. And they they sprinkle in a whole bunch of religious practices. They make it their own. They say, well, this is my religion. It's how I do it. Paul says from the scriptures, it's self-made and it's foolish. Or 2 Corinthians 10.5, lofty speculation. Those who constantly are challenging and speculating on the Word of God. Again, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. In fact, I would believe that asking questions is the beginning of your, your hermeneutical study. 
how you begin to approach the text of Scripture, you ask questions of the text because you want to know. There's a difference between asking questions and always being a questioning person who has a critical spirit, lofty speculation. 1 Timothy 4.1, deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. There are doctrines and teachings that sound biblical that are flat contradiction to Scripture. 1 Timothy 6.20, worldly and empty chatter. Conversations about spiritual things that just go in circles and circles and circles and never land. So often I feel there are well-meaning people who just, they want to just keep on chewing it over and over again. They, just, they go into vain questions that just have no purpose, no basis in reality. They just keep on going over and over, worldly, empty chatter, opposing arguments, which is falsely called, as he says, knowledge. All the substance of worldly philosophy. In our day, I would even add that any kind of ism, any ism you could add to Christianity that passes itself off as Christian. Socialism, Marxism, liberalism. And I would even contend conservatism, while it is valuable for society, where in the places that conservatism contradicts the message of Christ, it must not be followed. We're not here as Christians to win people over to conservatism. We're here to win people to Christ. That is ultimately what our job is to do. We are Christians first. And then when all those other philosophies, when those philosophies help us, we praise God for them. A conservative mentality in our nation has served the gospel. And so I praise God for that. But that is not the end game for us. Christ is the end game. Christ is the goal. He is the destination. Christ will not share his throne with anyone. It belongs to him solely. And so we are called to build our lives on his words. He notes in John 12, 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. He says, if you don't accept me, guess what? It's not just me. You reject what I say, it's what I say that will condemn you. He's talking about his words, his teaching, which are bound up in who he is. And so we are meant to heed the words of Christ and to build our lives on the truth of his word. And what is to be the result, my friends? What is their result? These two builders, they both have a result. Number four. The result of this, both builders, they heard Christ's words, both responded, both built houses, and then both of those houses came under a great storm. The first part of both, verse 25 and 27, are identical. Look at 25 and 27. The verbiage there is identical. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house. The same thing happens to both of them. Now it's tempting to attribute this storm to as, as what Augustine called the storms of life. That Jesus is talking about when, you know, when trials come, when things happen to you in your life, when you're shaken to the core, what is it that you go to? Now, I would say that there is some truth to that. If you're building your life on self-sufficiency or on some other entity, or if you're building your life on anything else, when your whole life falls apart, those things are not going to be there to help you. If you build your life on Christ and on his word, when trials come, and they do, 
then you'll have more spiritual resources. You're going to have Christ comforting you in the midst of your trial. So there is a broad application that I believe that can be made when the trials of this life come. However, when we consider the thrust of Matthew 7, we see that this storm is nothing short of the day of judgment. That's the meaning in verse 13, verse 19, and verse 22. The day of the Lord. This is final judgment. This is what happens to you at the end when it's all over. For the one who has built his life on Christ and on his word, the storm, the storm of God's wrath, will not be able to knock down the house that has been built. Your your life will stand up under the tidal wave of God's judgment. Is it because you are so great? No. It's because Christ has wrapped you in His righteousness. He has paid for your sins. He has died for you on the cross. You've trusted in Him your lifetime and you have, you've put your, your whole life into His hands. He's the one who stands in your place. He's the one who advocates for you. And so when the, the judgment comes and you're found to be in Christ, your house will not fall. Why? He says because it's been founded on the rock. That's an encouraging thing to know, isn't it? That when everything is over and God's judgment washes over the entire world, not in water, by the way, Second Peter says by fire, when the fires come and His flood of judgment comes, will you be found standing? What about the man who built his house on the, the shifting sands of worldly philosophy? Speculative theories, man's opinions. I'm reminded of the story of Elijah. He's ministering in in Israel. And their problem was not that they had said, we don't care about God anymore. Their problem was that they were trying to mix Baal and the Asherah, false gods, in with the religion of the true God. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. So we're going to have the temple to Jehovah here. We're going to have the temple to Baal over here. We're just going to bounce back and forth and see which God works best for us. If that's what you're doing, I'm going to do my own thing. I'll stick God in my pocket, a couple of verses in there. I'll go to church once in a while. I'm going to say a couple nice things and try not to hurt anybody. I'm not going to kill anybody, so that's good. And just see if that holds up. And when I get to the end of my life, he's going to look at me and you know, he's going to say, well, you can't be all that bad. You're not as bad as so-and-so. But is that what Jesus says here? Is building your life on the shifting sands of philosophy, speculation, man's opinions, self-made religion, is that going to work? Verse 27, the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell. Notice he doesn't end the sentence there. He modifies it. And great was its fall. didn't just fall, my friends. It was decimated. A life built on vain philosophy and not on Christ will prove in the end to be disastrous. Where everything that you know and hold dear and have built on, everything you loved, will be obliterated. Again, you might come to church and sit in the pew and listen to sermons and sing hymns and bow your heads, but you might not belong to Christ. If that's where you are, I would stop and consider your life. 
Maybe you're pretending. I don't know. Maybe you've plastered the walls of your house with a whitewash that looks good on the outside, but underneath it's crumbling. Let me just say that God has a warning for this. From Ezekiel 13, he says this, And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. So tell those who plaster over it with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding rain will come and you, O hailstones, will fall and a violent wind will break out. Behold, the wall, when the wall has fallen, you will not be asked, where is the plaster which you plastered it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a violent wind break out in my wrath. There will also be my anger, a flooding rain and hailstones to consume it in wrath. So I will tear down the wall which you plastered over with whitewash and bring it to the ground so so that its foundations will be laid bare. And when it falls, you will be consumed in its mist and you will know that I am the Lord. He's describing what Jesus is talking about right here. It's not just that your house falls. He says it falls with a great fall. A fall, a house that collapses under the immense weight of the wrath of God. A house that collapses under His anger and His vengeance over rebellion and sin. A house that collapses because you thought that your own efforts and your own righteousness would save you. I I beg you, my friends, don't build your life on sinking sand. Covering up this shoddy work of your foundation with whitewash. Build your life on the Word of God, on biblical truth, on sound doctrine. Build on the foundation of the Gospel. And what is that Gospel? That Jesus has come into the world, perfectly righteous, truly God and truly man, two natures in one, and lived a life of perfect obedience to the commands of God. And in His righteousness, He gave His life. He says, no one takes my life from me. I give it. So Jesus gave His life and died on the cross to make atonement, to make payment for sin. He stood in your place as a substitute and was punished and penalized by the Father for you. He died on the cross and paid the penalty for sins. And those who trust in Jesus, who build their life, give their heart and build their life on Christ, have their sins removed, the wrath of God taken away. And in the end, their house will stand and endure the flood of God's judgment. Why do I preach the Bible week in and week out from this pulpit? Why do I do it? Because it is the only truth on which you can build your lives. If I stand up here and give you my opinion, you're going to die. If I give you God's truth, you'll live. It's life or death. It's really quite simple. And so therefore, this pulpit is built on the Word of God. This church is founded on the Word of God, on doctrine, on Scripture. And so therefore, if this pulpit and this church is built on the Word of God, I entreat you to build your life on the Word of God and on the God of that Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You've given us Your Word. 
revelation that's come from you. And God, as we sit here and even contemplate our own lives, Lord, I ask that you would move in the hearts of these people. For those who love you and belong to you, O Lord, that you would strengthen them, that they would be emboldened by these words, that they would see that their life being built on Christ and on His Word is on a solid foundation. And while we are never to rest and sort of hang back and get prideful about this, our lives are lived by grace through faith, we can still have confidence in Christ and say, Lord, as long as I stick with you and you are with me, then my house will stand and I will see you face to face because you have held on to me in all righteousness. But Lord, for those who are not sure, maybe they don't know if they're building their lives on the Word of God, on truth. Maybe they're building their lives on something else, on themselves, their own ability to to do the right things. Maybe they're building their lives on the things that they're hearing and seeing and watching and other people, what they're telling them. And Lord, I pray that you would destroy that in their minds and in their hearts, that they would see the utter uselessness and deficiency of worldly philosophy. They would instead run toward you and toward your truth. But they would say, I'm done. I'm done trying to do this my own way. I repent. I turn from my sinful ways, from the sin that's in my heart. I turn and I trust in Jesus Christ alone. Save me, O God, and show me the way. And Lord, we are commanded to enter that narrow gate It is difficult, Lord, you've told us so. That in this life we will have trouble. We will even be persecuted for faith. But we are called to take heart because you, our Lord and Savior, have overcome this world. Scripture tells us that greater is he who is in us than the one who is in the world. And so, God, I pray that you would use not just this teaching this morning, but that you would use the totality of your sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that has cut us in so many different ways to the heart, as the Scripture promises to rightly divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, right to the core of who we are. I pray that you would cut us deeply with your truth so that we may turn to you and be healed, for you are the great physician. God, what an amazing Sovereign, loving, righteous, holy God you are. Worthy of all praise. And I pray, Lord, on our behalf, that you would continue to glorify yourself through this church. Be glorified, God. And we pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen.